0: Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gaia land by me, Liam Miller, he, him, He's a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Uh, Love, Rinse, Repeat is supported by Uniting Mission and Education, part of the Synod in New South Wales and ACT, and I thank them for their support. My guest today is uh, John Butler. John, welcome along to Love, Rinse, Repeat.
1: Well, you're right. Thank
0: you for having me. Uh, For those who don't know... Uh, John Butler is Howard R. Lamar, Professor Emeritus at Yale University and Research Professor of History at the University of Minnesota. His books include Los Angeles um, Times bestseller, Becoming America, the prize-winning Awash in a Sea of Faith, and the Huguenots in America. He is the past president of the Organization of American Historians. And today we are talking about his book, God in Gotham. The Miracle of Religion in Modern Manhattan, out now with uh, Harvard University Press. You can pick that up uh, wherever you pick up books and I definitely recommend picking it up and this interview, I'm sure, will show you why. Uh, so, John, let's just, um, for those who are interested, let's get this the broad, what got you interested in this topic of exploring uh, religion in New York uh, in, in the Gilded Age? What, what kind of started that that itch to explore that?
1: Well, uh, it started from, it started really from teaching. So I, at Yale, when I uh, was a teacher, I taught a big lecture class, 100 or so, 120 students uh, on American religion from the Civil War to the present. And I had trouble explaining what happened to American religion from roughly the 1880s to the 1960s, because the standard way to do that is to really stress secularization. That is to say, oh, you know, things weren't really so great. And yes, there was the, the social gospel for Protestants in, in the main, um, but, you know, basically things sort of went to hell in a handbasket. And, uh, you know, it's it hasn't been so great ever since. The difficulty with that, of course, is that the facts isn't, that isn't the way the that's not the way the facts lined up. That is, how is it that you could th- think about it this way? Where did we get Jerry Falwell from? In other words, if if we if everything was so dismal uh, from the 1880s into the 1920s, the Depression, whatever, where did Jerry Falwell come from? And I wrote an article a long time ago now called. A jack-in-the-box history, it was as though uh, Jerry Fall was a kind of jack-in-the-box, it just popped up out of nowhere, almost nowhere, because after all, religion had been in decline. Mm-hmm. So where, where did he come from? So that's that really So that really started me on this. Mm-hmm. I, I, I had something, a uh, difficulty explaining what was going on here. Then there are two other things that really incline me to say, well, then the question is, well, why didn't I write a book on America? Why did I write a book on Manhattan or New York City as a whole? But at least on Manhattan, why didn't I write a book about America? Well, two things. One is uh, I grew up in rural Minnesota in a farm, farm town. Um, my dad was a commuting farmer and uh, I grew up in a town of a thousand people and had a high school class of 36 and we took a senior class trip in 1958 to Washington, D.C. and New York. Now, when we went to New York, of course, we didn't go to Queens. <laughs> we didn't go to Brooklyn. We didn't go to Staten Island. We went to Manhattan. Of course, that's New York. That's what you think about it, New York. Yeah. And uh, I really have never forgotten that. I, it was just so thrilling, so mm-hmm. captivating for um, for someone for someone from that kind of a town, I I never gave it up, you know? And so when I moved, ultimately, I took a job at Yale and 70 miles away and I love to go to the city. So why not write about New York? And then moreover, why not write about New York? Because it's generally thought to be Oftentimes described as the capital of American secularism. That is, when you go to Manhattan, you don't think about Jesus. All right? You don't think. You don't. You don't think about religion. You don't think about. If you thought about it a little bit, if you gave it a little more thought, you think about Times Square. Okay. Mm. And then when, if you look at Times Square, there isn't much that. There's much there that would make you think. Oh, yes, you know these people are really pious. <laughs> these people are really, you know, they're secret—they're—they're secret wor- they're, they're not so secret worshipers. They're really—that's mm. that, what they are. And even if you, if you took all the tourists away, okay, mm-hmm. so you can say all oh, the tourists are all evangelicals, but <laughs> the New Yorkers—they're they're, well—that's not how, what people think. And even when they walk by, they sort of walk by. Um, St. Patrick Cathedral, which is the biggest um, ecclesia, biggest sanctuary in the city, mm. and always has been. Uh, I mean, it has been ever since it was built. And yes, yeah, so they, they peak in non non Protestants peak, non Catholics peak inside. So Jews and Jews and Protestants peak inside, and the Catholics go in, uh, <laughs> and the brave Jews and the brave Protestants go in, but <laughs> only the brave ones. And uh, But they they go in and then they keep walking and then they think about spending some more money and that's what they do. So that's what I thought. And then uh, it happened that my closest friend of many, many years uh, was uh, was someone that I knew from graduate school at the University of Minnesota. And um, he ended up being, very quickly became an urban, he was an urban historian and he, ended up as Distinguished Professor of Urban History at UCLA, and sadly he died in 2005. But he and I and our families would spend all summers in Minneapolis, so I would come back here all summer long. And we lived a couple blocks away from each other then, and we both had two boys, and we shepherded them around to first wading pools and ultimately to basketball camps. So over 20 some years, and we talked history all summer. Mm. And I learned urban history by talking to him. So if I put the, th- the three together, that is the intellectual problem, my fascination for Manhattan, and this my my association with Eric Munkunen, I know that's what we're talking about here. Mm. Um, That's why, that's how I honed in on Manhattan. That's why I wrote such a book. Why shouldn't I write? At first, I was going to write a book on the the whole city. (laughs) And that lasted about, I don't know, I think that lasted about a year. And then I realized, you know, I I have to finish this book in my lifetime. (laughs) And I can't, I can't, uh, I really can't do this. Uh, I can't do the whole city. No way I can do the whole city. So then, so then. You know, well, I could have picked Brooklyn, which was sometimes it was described in the 19th century as a city of churches. That's when, when Brooklyn was an independent city. But what fun would that be? You know, <laughs> why, why wouldn't yeah. that's not going to solve my problem. Now, yeah. My problem is really the secularism problem. Mm. So I uh, honed in on Manhattan, and I decided mm. get rid of all the all the other boroughs, and I honed in on Manhattan. And that's how I came to write this book, and it took me much longer than I thought it was going to take. And um, part of that is because the research was so much fun. <laughs> I had so much fun doing the research, I couldn't get around to doing the writing. <laughs> and besides, you know, for historians, most historians have every every day you research, you, you have a great day. You always find something. Doesn't make any difference what it is, even if it's not on your topic, you find something that's interesting. But that's not true when you write. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's not the way writing goes. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily work that way. I think most most writers would tell you that. So the writing is the hard part. The research is the easy part, except it takes a lot of time. Yes. But anyway, so anyway, I did finally finish it. And here it is. And there, <laughs> there, there, there we have it.
0: Yes. No, that's great. Thank you for that. Um, and as you say, yes, there's definitely a lot of really interesting stuff to find. And we'll, we'll dive into a bit of that. I guess one of the, I guess you said there's this key narrative that exists of this, like, secularisation, dampened, squashed um, religion in this time, and that one of the main factors in that was modernity, um, was this factor that was going to make no one's going to be religious because of modernity, you know, although there'll be small pockets of it, but it can't be this thing that flourishes. And I guess a key part of your book is that it's not despite of modernity. Like this narrative of, of religion in 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 Manhattan is not kind of I guess like um you know with with shields and 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 battalions they fought back modernity and found a way to, to for religion to survive it was through modernity because of modernity um yeah. utilizing a lot of what came with modernity um and even as you'll say also urbanization um utilizing those actually to transform and to um, so that, that religion would actually flourish in that time. So can you talk to us a little bit about that, about this, you know, because sure. I think that's often, again, it's one of those narratives that, that abides and uh, your book is kind of showing maybe yeah, not so
1: Well, much. as much as I love uh, reading Max Weber, the great German sociologist, um, <laughs> he, he was wrong <laughs> uh, about his this famous pronouncement that he made in 1917 and a speech in Munich in which he, discussed the, um, uh, the disenchantment of the world. The world was becoming disenchanted. It was becoming disenchanted by modernity. And that means bureaucratization. That meant urbanization. That meant uh, the rise of science, scientific explanation. Uh, all of the, so many of the things, and, and and by urbanization, that also means density. You know, that how, how could, how, how could religion survive Religion was really well suited to face-to-face communities but it wasn't well suited he, he thought to uh, these massive urban spaces where nobody knew each other nobody people didn't watch each other uh, you know they, they didn't pay attention to each other they didn't know who they were they didn't know what they believed they didn't know they didn't know what weird behaviors they were they were <laughs> engaged in uh, well they might know some of them but there wasn't much they could do about it. And um, he he discussed the disenchantment of the world. And that fra- that that phraseology has become just, you run into it everywhere. It, it goes on everywhere. Now, the, the difficulty with, there are two difficulties with Weber. One is that he died very soon thereafter of pneumonia. He was dead by 1920. I think he died in 1920. It was only, I think, 56. Uh, and he never really, he never really, Filled out what he meant by that. He wrote books on on Buddhism, Confucianism, Judaism, and whatnot. But those were earlier. He didn't write the book that he seemed to be in the market to write on the disappearance of re- religion in amidst modernity. That book was never written. It, he he died. So everybody sort of leaned on. They tried to p- pick out this this phrase about the, the disenchantment of the world and then pick it apart as best they can. but there isn't much from Weber that they can use because he didn't fill, fill it out. Mm. And the, the one for me, one of the one of the uh, I didn't even realize this when I started, I didn't know at the beginning when I started that May, Weber had actually come to America and he'd spent several weeks in New York City. He came to America in 1904 to give a big talk at a huge social science conference in St. Louis. And he toured the country. Uh, he went down to Tuskegee. He saw a black service in Washington, D.C. He went up to upstate New York to, to, to see some German immigrant settlements. And then he he ended up in New York City, spent two weeks there. And the main thing that he did in New York City was to go to church services. <laughs> And uh, he, he he went. He sort of we we, don't, we know about them because of him, largely because of his wife's di- diaries or his, his wife's notes. Mm. That. And um, they, I, we know that they went to a Christian Science service, and he, which he thought was really boring, which <laughs> was very boring. And they also went to um, an Ethical Culture uh, service. Uh, which is either religious or not religious, depending on how you want to view ethical the ethical culture movement. And he thought uh, that uh, Felix Adler, who was the head of the site, he was also boring. They didn't realize that she wrote this in her book, and they didn't realize that they were going to be at a dinner with him the same <laughs> night. She wrote, she wrote this, and so they had to suffer through a dinner with him. Maybe they didn't have to suffer through a dinner with him. But anyway, maybe it was a little embarrassing when she wrote that he was boring, but
0: so
1: they <laughs> had to go to a dinner with. Him. Um, they they weren't impressive. and they. She also wrote down that, that 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 Weber really thought that the churches were being displaced by the. He saw the by the settlement movements. Uh, that is largely either settlement houses or the YMCA's or ultimately the YHCA's Young Hebrew Men's Association or the Women's Association or the Young Christian YWCA, YMCA's and YWCA's. Well, what he didn't really realize is that that happened to be the period in which the Y movement itself was very Christian. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were they were serious about about sort of implementing the social gospel through the YMCA's. They, they weren't like they might be now. If I go to my Y in <laughs> St. Paul, Minnesota, you know, I, I don't hear much about Jesus. Everybody wants to know, is the weight room ready or something yeah. like that, that's what they want to know about. They don't want to know about religion. But in the in in 1904, the Y movement was really very religious. But Weber didn't really realize that. He he Mm. saw them as a very secular kind of thing. He thought that the churches were being, churches specifically were being, that's the phrase, he he didn't, Mm. he and he really meant Protestant churches. That, That seems pretty clear. And he didn't discuss judaism he didn't discuss synagogues but any mm. case he didn't he, he he just didn't think that they were that that they were he thought they were secular and they were being displaced. churches were being displaced by these mm. secular things if then my my point is is that if he had come back if he had lived and if he had come back 1920 i think he would have been astonished mm. he would have been astonished by the growth in the number of the, the pure number growth in the number of sanctuaries in Manhattan alone would, mm. would, would have been phenomenal. Between 1900 and 1920, 150, 200, 250 sanctuaries go up. And some of them are Catholic, some of them are Protestant, and some of them are Jewish. Mm. Because this is also the great age in which Jews turn from very tiny congregations and uh, meeting in apartments to fairly large scale synagogues, mm. and the second, it was the second generation that did the, that built the that built the larger most of the larger synagogues. There had been large synagogues built in the 19th century, but the number, those numbers were dwarfed by those that were built between 1895 and 1920, even 1930. Mm. Uh, and uh, Weber would have been astonished by that alone, much less. If he had attended services and saw the numbers of people who were flocking to all these services, mm. so whereas he thought the world was being was was being disenCHANTed, you know, you would have had. Were you going to tell all these people flocking into Catholic services or Protestant services, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, whatever they are, black services everywhere? you'd say D- didn't you don't you know that the world is being disenchanted why, what are you doing here why don't you go out go out and enjoy yourselves and and uh just forget forget about all this spiritual stuff the world is the world is disenchanted and you don't you you have to realize that <laughs> well i don't think they, they would have been if you had told them that i think they would have been <laughs> they would have said no no that's not why that you're wrong uh i'm here to worship you know i'm here to do it. And so the question is, well, how did this occur? You know, what, what how, how, how did they, well, my point is, is that um, most of these groups embraced the tools that modernity provided. And what were those tools? Well, if they were interested in building sanctuaries, among other things, they, they embraced tools of real, of the real estate business. Mm. Every one of these groups became experts in property management, buying and selling, acquiring lots, tearing down buildings, building sanctuaries. They did it in somewhat different ways. And the most, uh, the, the group that, that had the most centralized approach to this were Catholics. And they did this through um, the Archdiocese of New York, which was committed to very large scale parishes, meaning they would have, Mm-hmm. Sanctuaries that could seat 1,500-2,000 people, and they would run that, so that they would run masses, three, four, and five masses on every Sunday, mm-hmm. plus Saturday evening, late from late in the afternoon on Saturday through the evening, so that they could handle the the membership of anywhere from five to nine thousand pa- parish members, and that's just counting adults; it's not counting children. Mm. Uh, so they could work them through these, and they would have five or six priests. So they, so they, so they, needed, to, they needed to acquire big plots of land. Mm. And it's very clear that they did that. And they did that by buying up small pieces of property on the same block, and then tearing the buildings, tearing what ratty buildings were there were down, and then they would build these large-scale sanctuaries. And then you see them all over Manhattan. So, not, so it's not just, I mean, St. Patrick's was the, was the biggest, but there are all these parish churches were very, very large. Mm. And then the idea would be every Catholic parish would have a school. So then they needed a school building, and one of the things that the book points out is that the, if you look at the the, the, par- the sanctuaries all look like what you think a Catholic church looks like, but if you look at the school building, it looks like a New York City public school. Mm. That is, the architecture is very similar to a New York City public school. There isn't much difference between them. There's these, I'm talking about the buildings built between roughly the 1880s and the 1930s. Mm. So they all have a very similar architecture. Well, you need to acquire land for the school, and ideally, the school is in the same block mm. as the parish church. So you need to acquire more land, and usually, <laughs> the school came second. The school very seldom—I I don't even know of a case in which it came first. Maybe there's one, but I don't—I I don't know of any. The school came second, so there, the, the archdiocese has got all these people out buying property and acquiring it, and then then they've got architects, and they they did all the work for the parishes. Jews and Catholic, Jews and Protestants did it um, largely on their own. Uh, some Protestant denominations did give oversight and help to congregations that were, that needed, um, that needed help. And that usually came in the, for, in the form of finance. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that, that it seems as though that was, that, the Episcopal um, uh, Archdiocese seems to have done some of that. Mm. And some of the Methodists uh, did that, but others didn't. Mm. And um, Baptists usually didn't, but there are exceptions to that. But then they had, Baptists had one, one they had one great, great uh, source for their mortgages, and that was John D. Rockefeller, the original John D. Rockefeller, who was mm. a very loyal Baptist. And it's very clear from court records, because some of the congregations, we know that, not because it's hard to find these records, but some of the congregations would end up in disputes over their, over their finances, and then then they get into the court record, and it's in the court records that you discover, oh yes, John D. Rockefeller had financed this this small bank, for fifty thousand dollars, or fifty thousand dollars, a huge amount of money in eighteen ninety five or nineteen hundred. So so they had some benefactors, mm. and um, so the the Jewish denominations provided no financial help whatsoever, and they provided very little. Um, other kinds of help for, with architectures, but the Jewish, the Jewish synagogues were usually built entirely by uh, through the efforts of people getting together second generation Jews the, from the big immigration of the 1880s. And they, they did it on their own. They hired their own architects. They did their own funding. They sometimes got, all of them got sometimes mortgages from savings and loan associations, but uh, probably fifty percent. Although this is very hard to figure out because the financial records haven't largely survived. But in any case, probably fifty percent or more of their financing, in and for Protestants and Catholics, came from individuals who who contributed to a mortgage fund, and um, they would have sh- they would have sort of shares. In the mortgage. Mm-hmm. So that so they would learn to do that. That's one of the things they did. The other thing is they did is they all professionalized the clergy. Mm-hmm. So that um, so the clergy came increasingly had college degrees. They increasingly had fancy seminary degrees. <laughs> uh, they increasingly the larger congregations had went from one minister to two and then two to three and three to four. And sometimes the largest would have sort of professional Sunday school managers, people who, who learned how to do all this management. And they developed from the 1880s forward a whole literature on, on, on um, professionalizing professionalizing the management of congregations, mm. professionalizing finances, professionalizing then how to give a good sermon, and then <laughs> we, have to, we have to learn how to do that, how, how to manage, ultimately, By the 1920s, guess what comes in? How to be a psychologist. (laughs) So that that seminaries began to offer courses in psychology, modern psychology. Because one of the things we do know anecdotally is that far more people went to their priest, their minister, or their rabbi to seek counsel for a marriage problem, for example, than ever saw a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And we, we we know that from the records of of, of the clergy, yes. and so they so they so these clergy became very professionalized, and the, the, that this professionalism is a, is part of the of the development of modernity. Mm. So it's not something that it, it, yes, occasionally people complained about it, and occasionally you have it. Sometimes historians some or some especially. Maybe not so well trained a story, but I can think. Of, I used to have a book in my bookcase back here about it's a history of the Presbyterians, and the person complains about the professionalization uh, of the of of, of the denomination. Um, but I don't. But he doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the denomination largely succeeded because of this, mm-hmm. and people the congregants expected a professionalized clergy. They expected decent lessons in their Sunday schools. They ex- they ex- this is what they expected, and they wanted to know what was being taught in these Sunday schools, and, and what was the minister saying, and, and or, or the rabbi saying, what was the priest saying? Um, so uh, all of this is to say that Th- that these these groups, instead of rejecting modernity, and as you put it, riding into the twentieth century on 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 horses with shields, and as though you're as though you're this is a you know a, a, a movie about the about the Crusades, <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, everybody, you know, where they they're all wearing armor. The armor that they wore was the armor of modernity. Mm-hmm. That's the armor that they wore. And if they want to say that they wore some kind of armor here and there, it, it's because they adopted the modern techniques of doing this and that. Mm. Now, um, they also, that doesn't mean that there weren't issues. And one of the reasons that the book contains a separate chapter on blacks in New York, and it, it does, um, that traces blacks in Manhattan from lower the Lower East Side to what was called the Tenderloin District, which is now... Midtown, if you've been to New York, that's, that's where Times Square is. That was, was originally called the Tenderloin District. It was originally a lot of a, a kind of a red light district, actually. Mm. Uh, and then to Harlem. So the bla- blacks moved to the Tenderloin because it was cheap. Mm. And they were sort of being, being priced out of lower Manhattan. And then they had to move into the Tenderloin. And then when the Tenderloin began to develop as Midtown, They were priced out again, that is, especially by housing, even though they had all these nice, very nice sanctuaries. And they their 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 worshippers all had to migrate because they couldn't afford to live. They were overwhelmingly renters, and they couldn't afford to live in in, in, um in in the tender the old tender line, which was becoming Midtown. And the one thing that uh that the black congregations did get out of out of being a sense forced out of Midtown was they got huge prices for their churches. Hmm. Uh, because hmm. the churches were highly valuable, sat on valuable land. And all but what you you if you go to Midtown today, you won't see any, you will see no physical presence, black presence, uh, uh, no, no memory of the former black presidents in, presence in Midtown at all, because every one of the congregations was demolished mm. to, to become an apartment building or an office building. They we were all demolished for that. And, they, and these congregations all moved to Harlem. Mm. So I tried to, uh, that was my case study. I, 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 I thought I could have written a case study on Presbyterians or, um, or reformed Jews or whatnot, but I thought, the case study that I wanted to write about was about blacks because it also illustrated the degree to which, despite the adoption of, or maybe because of the adoption of modernity, part of modernity involves Jim Crow. Part of modernity involves prejudice against blacks. Part of modernity involves the continuing, the never ending, and actually the developing notions about black inferiority mm. and about segregation and, and whatnot. And that's part of the story here that, that I that I described so um that's what I did <laughs>
0: yeah yeah no, that's great I think and then that chapter is really um helpful because as you say it's it's modernity brings both br- all these opportunities but also for that the for black, black religious community brought you know those specific challenges and and, and that push and that movement um, yes. and as you say then there has be you know kind of flexibility in in, in meeting in storefronts and things like that and, and you know and, and a bunch of other stuff has to be has to be adapted to um and and I guess also you kind of talking a bit about the, the church's role in resisting or pushing back or you know in early civil rights kind of um that, that was that was developing too that story too tied into yeah. what's going on there well yeah.
1: part of the part of the story that I wanted to and I I didn't really quite realize how Uh, true this would be. Um, I also really discovered that from the very beginning, the Black clergy, uh, wherever they were, in Lower Manhattan, in Midtown, or the Tenderloin, or then in Harlem, really tied their notion of Christianity to civil rights and to equal justice and to decency, the decent treatment of, of Blacks christian treatment because they were overwhelming mean, they were they were overwhelmingly protestant but and then overwhelming i mean they were overwhelmingly christian because there was a relatively small catholic catholic presence um among among new york city blacks um, but they really were and very forceful and of course they weren't very successful in doing that you know they they, they really so I, I spent a fair amount of time describing the work of uh, the Powells, Adam Clayton, yes. Powell Sr., and then the Powell who's best known, unfortunately, Adam Clayton, Powell Jr., the congressman,
0: mm. uh, and
1: best known because of his later um, moral problems that he, that he had when he was, after a number of years in Congress, mm. um, you know, he, he had, he did, he had a lot of, he squandered what he had, been able to do for civil rights through his moral failures. Uh, but his father, Adam Clayton Powell, A.C. Powell, he was known as A.C. Powell, it wasn't known as Adam Clayton Powell then, um, but his son was known as Adam Clayton Powell. Uh, his father was really um, very adamant about civil rights. Very, very, very adamant. And direct. Mm. And uh, demanding. And he he wrote a book at the end after the the, the riot uh, anti-black riots in New York in the 1940s. Uh, he wrote a book uh, it was his, the final book that he wrote and he he really it, it, you you feel the tiredness in the book mm. that he had it, it, he's talking about civil rights mm. and about Christianity, and about the failure of us a, of, a, of an overwhelmingly nominally Christian society to to accept blacks as equals in this society. And you can just feel the the, the weight mm. of the all this history, you know, half a century in his lifetime, half a century or more of failure to really, really change the, change the dialogue, change the facts. Mm. Uh, and that's and that's I thought that that was important to what I was doing when I was writing this book. Yeah. but the other the, at the end so I discussed the suburbs and mm-hmm. so the, you know, the the suburbanization is interesting because um if you if you go to an american suburb uh, even now um're uh, you know, 60 70 80 years away from from the development of the ni- suburbs in nineteen late 1940s post-world War II mm. suburbs what, what do you see? when most people think of suburbs, oh, the big shopping malls. But what predated the shopping malls? The spires. all mm. oh, these suburban congregations all over the place. Long before there was a there was there was a shopping mall, there were all these crazy congregations that they built up. And where the question is, where do they come from? Well, what happened was that all these all these New Yorkers who wanted to move, and in other cities too, all these people who moved to the suburbs from the city, so fleeing the city, they wanted to reconstruct the vibrant congregational life that they had known growing up. So you get all these thirty-year-olds; they they want you no, know, they want a Jewish congregation, they want a Protestant congregation, they want a Catholic parish, they want schools, etc. They want all of that, and they, that that. They weren't rejecting their religious training in the city. They they were now going to going to have it prosper in the suburbs, and that's where this all comes from. That's where the, all this the proliferation of suburban American congregations. Now there were critics of that who said, "Oh, you know, this isn't this isn't real religion because all these people want to do is belong." that's all they want to do is belong you know and there were a number i describe a number of, of the critics who who, who said all oh, that it's shallow it's a shallow religiosity they're really worshiping america they're not really worshiping jesus or they're not really worshiping god or whatnot but but i think they missed the point what what were the congregations always about the congregations were always about belonging and the congregation serving as a as a entry point for people realizing what their faith means and they can't realize what their faith means without belonging yes. that is it's in the congregation within the kind it's in the life of the congregation that helps them realize perfect the, their notions of how to treat people how how to think about how to think about religiosity what's moral what's ethical what are we doing here that all comes from doesn't come from Going out into the woods and and and, and speculating, <laughs> you know, rubbing up against trees and 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 doing nature it comes from getting together in these congregations, worshiping together, praying together, mm. uh, engaging in ritual together, uh, and doing if you're doing doing bar mitzvahs or baptisms or whatever it is that that makes their faith live, and they mm. need a congregation to do that. So this is what accounts that it's it's the effort to replicate. What all these people had had in the city, in the city where Max Weber thought the world was being being disenchanted, the, the city had had given them the, these notions about what they should do, and when they fled to the suburbs, for because they didn't like, you know, it was too crowded in the city, or all this and that, too much crime they thought, or whatnot. Uh, they wanted to perfect that in the suburbs. So, so you get a nice. Balance. So you get a nice balance from the 1880s when everybody's worrying about yes. about where is this religiosity going to survive? Everybody's worried. Mm. are worried they're going to be buried by all the Catholics and Jews. Uh, the Catholics are worried because there's no government support for religion. You know they never mm. had that. They always had that in Europe. And the Jews are worried because everybody, you know, our our people people aren't going to live in face to face communities anymore, and and they might not. Need, need their Judaism in mm. this in this big, big uh, in this great big city anymore. So there, to the 1960s, when some people said, we've got too much religion and it's too shallow. So, so, you're, so yeah. you start in one place and you end in another, mm. and you know, ultimately, that's where I think Jerry Falwell came from. <laughs> in other words, there's, there's this huge religiosity in America all over the place. Mm. through the through up into world war ii and then after the war then i don't discuss this in the book because but a, a fair amount of, of this stuff after the war gets tied into the into anti-communism mm. and whatnot but mm. that's not a, that's not a part of my book so i don't other people have discussed that and i'll let them
0: yeah
1: <laughs> in america they, they, i'll let mm. them run
0: that yeah um i was curious i was keen to talk about also about um the chapter of god's hot house um, and like, because you talk about like the proliferation of public religious intellectuals um, yeah. and, and and tied to that is what you said before about the professionalization of clergy, which means leads to the Jewish theological seminary, at least a union theological seminary, um, prominent place. So you've got like, you know, your, your, Niebers, your Paul Tillich's, your Abraham Joshua Heschel's, your Dorothy Day's, the Powell's, who you mentioned before, um, and, and a whole host of others of these. Figures who end up on time, right? Who who host, yeah, who host lectures that Absolutely. thousands of people come to. Um, again, that's when you think about people think about going to New York. New York, now you don't think, oh, I'm going to pop in and see what the latest professor from Union is talking about the, uh, the ground of our being and the courage to be. You know, like, that's not what we think we people go to do there. So, so talk to us a bit about this. Um, yeah, the, the the proliferation of these figures, their impact um, on, on this story. Um, and yeah, and, and just a bit about what made that so possible.
1: Yeah, so uh, you know, one of the other reasons I, wrote, I wanted to write about Manhattan is I thought, you know, if I wanted to write, do a little bit on theology, mm. a, little, a little bit, and I'm not, you know, that's not my thing. But in any case, I wanted to do do that. Um, well, where would you go? Let's say, let's say, forget, forget if you if you wanted if you just wanted to discuss. What was what was um, wh- where was all the intellectual action? Where was all theological action for the twentieth for the twentieth century? And I see we have visitors, and that's that's great. Don't don't worry. I have grandchildren, <laughs> I have children, so don't, we don't need to worry about that. Um, but if you wanted to do about do the theology thing, you'd say hi. How are you? It's early in the morning. So you want to hear about Reinhold Niebuhr? <laughs> okay, I bet you do. Okay. So, but if you wanted to do about, if you wanted to do something, and write a book on, a whole book on theology in 20th century America, what area would you go to? Well, you wouldn't go to the woods. You'd go to Manhattan. And that's not something that, that I think a lot of people originally thought about. No, they just they accept the fact that Niebuhr in Manhattan, Tillich is in Manhattan, Heschel is in Manhattan, Abraham Kaplan, you know, Kaplan, Kaplan is in Manhattan. Uh, Joseph Soloveitchik is in Manhattan. Dorothy Day is in Manhattan. Even the exile, the 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 exile, uh, 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 why am I blanking on his name? Jacques um, Maritain and ends up being stuck in Manhattan where well, he isn't stuck in Chicago. He he, he could have. Decided to spend World War II in any American city, but he decided to spend it in Manhattan, and where he was very, very active. And uh, so that that sort of sealed the deal for me, you know. Whatever another, I, I admit it also was the chapter that took me the longest to write because I was the most nervous about writing, you know, because I, I end up having to having to write. Um, 1,500 to 2,000 words on Reinhold Niebuhr. No, well, okay. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, yeah, you can say, what is he going to say that's worth reading in 1,500 words? I mean. You know, and even there are, you know, seven, eight books already, nine books on Reinhold Niebuhr. And every yeah. other book discusses Niebuhr for a chapter or something like that. Yes. Then there's Paul Tillich, and there are all these figures Heschel and Kaplan and whatnot. They've all got, you know, Dorothy Day's, they've got several biographies. You know, every one of them, actually, everybody except Joseph Soloveitchik has got a biography, and Soloveitchik needs one. So he's he's the leading fiction for Orthodoxy. Leading figure for Orthodox Jews, your Australian readers should should know that. And it's very important. Um, well, <laughs> I did my best. Let's just put it that way. I, it took me the longest because mm-hmm. I, it took me the longest to research. It took me the longest to sort of really hone the hone the chapters down. I'd start out with three thousand words and I had to to chug them down to fifteen hundred or thereabouts, eighteen hundred words. Um, I'm actually quite happy with with what I wrote. And so far, I haven't had a reviewer to say, oh, you know, this is a bunch of punk. So so I felt lucky about that. So far, people seem to have appreciated, I think, what I was trying to do. And that I'm trying to give a sketch of how it is that these figures transform the dialogue about the nature of religion in in the nature of religion, and they happen to be located all in Manhattan, which is where you would not expect to find them. Why would you expect to find them? You would expect to find them in a seminary located out in the woods someplace. In some some isolated location where they can think and and you know they can contemplate nature and they can they could be at peace with God and whatnot. Well, no, they were at peace with God on on on, on you know on Broadway. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. I mean, they, they 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 were perfectly fine and you know riding the subway they were at peace with God. They could figure that out. And that's what I tried to write about. And then I you know at the end of that chapter there are also all kinds of other figures. You know, there's a a black woman who's raised from the dead, and she she actually has a whole little denomination. And when I say she was raised from the dead, I'm not kidding, that is, she thought she was or whatever, and she... She she said you know the trouble with she was raised from the dead she said because she she had so many congregational members that prayed for her return that she had to come back And she was she was stuck coming back they they prayed her back into into life and that's that's what she said it's it's what she believed it's what her her followers believed so um so there were all kinds of people I have a picture of a of a man uh, whose name is not known a white guy who was preaching in Harlem. Uh, and I always I love the picture that's it's in the book because he's preaching next. He, he's set up on the street next to some movie posters, and you think thinking, well, okay, so he's next to the movie posters because you know he catches some people who are there to look at the movie posters. But he he can he can have some some spiritual words for a while. They're trying to figure out what kind of a movie in the nineteen nineteen late 1930s they want to watch in order. So you, you, find this, you, you find these people all over the place, and not just the, these famous people, but people who are, who are preaching all over the city in one way or another. And again, this isn't the, this isn't the Manhattan that you're, you think you're, you're that, that most people think about. They, they don't think about that part of Manhattan in the least. They think about Times Square, they think about movie theaters, they think about secularism, they think about high finance, uh, most of which is corrupt. you know they they, they think about banking, you know, uh, the stock market, uh, that, that's what they think about. No, well, that's true, but to here are all these people who are thinking about that while they're worshiping, while they're attending services, while they're giving money to all these congregations. If you think about, it, I never was able to calculate how much money would be contributed. To religious organizations in a single calendar year, any time between the 1880s and the 1960s, the amounts would have been phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal, would have been mind-boggling. And I, you know, I, I wish I could think of think of a way to capture that, of, of, of simply saying how much money did people did people give? Well, they gave a lot. And that's and that's how they got all this. That's how they paid these salaries. It's how they built these buildings. It's how they constructed all this stuff. they were engaged in high finance all the time.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, that is uh, uh, so fascinating. As you say, there's, there's just so much both the big and the small throughout all this um, time. So I guess my my final question. Um, which maybe you have an answer for, maybe you don't, was is there one thing you were just like particularly sad you had to leave out? <laughs> like one uh, one story, one figure, one little community that you were like, I really wanted to do this, and, but it just, it, it couldn't make it. Or, or maybe you couldn't make it in the form that you wanted. Maybe you were like, I wanted this to be a much bigger thing and I had to just make passing reference.
1: You know, I, here's how I'll answer your question. I would have liked it if I could have written more about each of the chapters that I wrote. I would have liked it. It would have been fun for me as a historian because I, I, I like the facts of things. Um, to have written, you know, to double the size of the chapter on the blacks, to double the size of the, I would like to have written more about our religious architecture. I would have liked to write uh, more of these vignettes of the major theological figures in the city. I would like to have write, written two or three chapters on the suburbs, but you know, the catch for, for a historian, I think is that who's gonna read that? And I thought, you know, I decided in the end that I wanted a book that could be read. I didn't want a 600 page book, even though uh I think a number of people would have liked it better if I had written a 600-page book. But it's not what I wanted to do. It's not what I, I thought would be. I wanted to get the basic story out and I'll leave it to others to, to decide, did I get anything right? Uh, <laughs> did I get some of it right? <clears throat> did I get you know, a part, as I say, part of it, right? Did I push the, the subject in the right direction? Maybe that's the main thing I wanted to do is I wanted to push the subject in the right direction. I wanted to get away from, and, and the, the book is not meant to be praiseworthy of organ, of organized religion. It's not meant to be, um, it's not meant to, to, it's not meant to be a proselytizing book. Uh, for religion or Christianity or Judaism itself, it's meant to be a book that sort of says, here's, here's what was going on. And if we want to discuss the demise of organized religion in the 20th century, we need to push a lot of that story much farther back into the 80s, the 90s, or the early 21st century. That that's that's that that this is what I'm trying to this is what I'm trying to do. So we've we've had a whole literature. Of when did religion all fall apart? You know. So we have some historians, Brad Gregory at at uh, Notre Dame. You know, he's got a book on on uh, you, you know the uh, sort of he, he he thinks the end of the story started with the Reformation. You know, he he claims it's not an anti Protestant book, but honestly, it is. And uh, he said, well, because magically, when did things start falling apart? 1500. Well, what happened around 1500? Oh, yes, Martin Luther. Okay, well, okay, 1517 or something like that. Okay, magically. That, so we've had, then we've had the Enlightenment and that ruined everything. Okay, well, now we know, well, the 18th century, things didn't fall apart that badly in the 18th century. Yes, they did. Uh, so we had a pretty secular French Revolution, but then we got you know, that got everything back sort of again. Mm. And uh, then we've had everything fell apart in, in London and all the big British cities. Then mm. so we've had that whole little we've got a whole literature about that. But then, well, maybe yes, maybe no, whatever. So we keep pushing, having to push the story back. Yeah. And in America, we really have to say, you know, I think i tried to say we, we need to push the story much, 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 toward the end of the 20th century. Mm. Because arguing for the demise of religiosity, religion, Christianity, Judaism, Catholicism, and whatnot, all of these groups, if you take Manhattan, maybe Manhattan, if you take Manhattan <laughs> or the rural Minnesota where I grew up, <laughs> if, you take, if you take Manhattan or the rural Midwest, religiosity is thriving in the 1950s and 60s. It's just, it's just chock a block. You know, you can't shut it down. And so the question is: well, then, you know, Weber might have been right, but he was a century too soon. Right,
0: yes. Yes. Mm. Now, maybe
1: he was right a yeah. century too soon. But now look now, look at the 21st century. You know, here we are in the 21st century. So uh you know, and we've just have gone through the pandemic, and we're still going through the pandemic. What's happened to religiosity? Well, all these congregations—I've done all these Zoom sessions with with congregations about about my book, you know—and I'm getting you get 150 people, 200 people tune into these things, and oh, okay, so they're doing the internet—they're doing religion on the internet, and the that's how mm, it, the American mm. congregations are surviving this through through Zoom. Yeah, and. Um, you know, now some of them will go back to in-person, in, in-house in services. So that's that's what I, I would have liked to have write, written more, but mm. the truth is I didn't want to write more. Mm. And I took some pleasure in trying to really, trying to really make my book a, in a certain kind of way, have a certain kinds of density of compression, mm. the density of compression that was comprehensible without people's eyes glazing over because I'm mentioning 600 different buildings or different, I would have liked more ministers. I mean, I've gotten some criticism of why didn't I, why didn't I, why didn't I write, why didn't I include this rabbi or why didn't I include this, this priest or why didn't I include this, this, uh, this minister, whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, I could have included a dozen more, but you can only include so many. Mm. So I thought you could only yes. include so many and make it comprehensible. So that's mm-hmm. what I was up doing. That's 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 the only thing. I'm I'm just I put it this way. At my stage in life and at my stage <laughs> of my career, I'm just glad the book is done <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> and that it's out there and that people yes. can read it and they can pick it to death and they can say we always should have done this, should have done that. But I did what I did and I had I had a lot of fun doing it. Maybe too much, <laughs> which is. In part, why it took me a while to finish it, but it was fun to do, and I'm glad I did it. The mm-hmm. one thing I really loved to do was do the pictures. But mm-hmm. so when, when I submitted the manuscript, I had 92 photographs. Oh, right. And That's... then my editor at Harvard said, "John, you forgot that your contract calls for 40." <laughs> <laughs> so I had to cut them all down, and there are actually only 36. I think there are 36 mm-hmm. that I that I included. Mm-hmm. But I love doing the pictures, and I I I'm really Proud of, of the pictures that were included. Some of them are yes. sort of weird, whatever. I like the one of the run of Paul Tillich jumping. There's a yes, picture of him jumping, it's, <laughs> and, and that was done by a weird photographer who had a who who did a book of famous people jumping, and that and Paul Tillich was one of them. And mm. uh, anyway, yeah. So I had fun doing or the Dorothy Day picture I got. Nobody else has used the one that I that I use. I found it through through the through the web. Mm. I found it through an accident, and uh, I love I love that picture. I think that's mm.
0: great. Well, the book is is tremendous, and I think you know all those choices you made uh off because it, it's very readable, very um, you know a, a great narrative, and and yes, as you say, I think it just opens the world for a lot of these someone can get fascinated by a figure and, and follow that down and, and give it its own treatment. But um, so the book is God in Gotham, the miracle of religion in modern Manhattan uh, out now at Harvard. And you can pick that up and, and I really encourage folks to get it. It's it's really a, a fascinating read. Uh, John, thank you for joining us today on Love is Repeat. Thank you for this conversation. It's been so wonderful. Um, I'm sure everyone's learned a lot and excited to, to learn more by picking up the book and, and diving deeper in. Anything else you want to draw people's attention to? Anything else you want to promote this late stage in the game? I
1: really, it's so nice of you to know. I, 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 to speak for how many thousand miles apart we are. (laughs) Yes. So I guess it's the one benefit of Zoom. Mm. And I was charmed to meet your daughter. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. So that's, well, that's great. And, 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 uh, you know, what a lovely time. So I, I really appreciate your. Interested in the book, and uh, I wish
0: you the best. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week.